Talk of the Town on 1290 CJBK, where we have talk all day and sports all night. And then we have Art Bell. I get to listen to him in the morning sometimes if I get up early enough. And it's, uh, I know Ryan can't, Ryan gets up early just to listen to him. Yeah, I don't mind Art, actually. Well, you kind of see the world through his glasses, don't you? Well, not quite, no, no, but it's an interesting <laughs> program to listen he to. He does have some fun yeah. people on from time to time. Yep. I love the end of the world guys, though, eh? I love those guys. There's a couple of them on there. I can't remember the guy's name, but I heard him on the other morning, and he wrote a book maybe 10 years ago saying the end of the world was coming in five years. And now he's back. Now, equal now? Yeah, now he's back with his new book. You know, <laughs> on a second. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can you spell credibility? Anyway. That's neither here nor there. on a different calendar. This is uh, Left, Right, and Center with uh, Bob Metz and Josh Schlemmer. Nice to have both of you here again, as usual. Thank you. Uh, before we get into uh, the program today, or this portion of the program, I want to, uh, I want to uh, have Jeffrey talk to us a little bit about something that happened last week. We had a uh, problem with one of our listeners, and uh, Jeff indicated that uh, um, there might be some, some uh, solution, or you might be able to help in some small way. And, in fact, you were able to help in a rather large way, I Well, understand. it wasn't me. I, I had nothing to do with it. it uh, I have to give credit to uh, Bob Wood's office, actually, that uh, part of the issue was that it was a disabled person um, having trouble with uh, benefits under a new system that's come in. And part of the problem was that their existing medical file in the London uh, Ministry office uh, they wouldn't ship it down to the Toronto office. They expected the disabled person to go around to all their doctors and try and recreate this file that was sitting right in the ministry's you know, own office. And uh, the frustration was that uh, the, the new office that's centralized in Toronto uh, would not look at the file from the London office. They wouldn't get it. <laughs> And uh, so it, what they said was that uh, in order for us to get this file, we had to send in a Freedom of Information Act request to the London office, uh, go through the, that rigmarole, get the uh, file from them so that we could send it back to them in Toronto. Same, same ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and it just made no sense at all. Anyway, uh, Bob, Woods, uh, Bob Wood uh, personally sent a letter off to uh, Janet Ecker, who's the minister in charge of that, uh, of that area. And uh, I had a call this morning from the Toronto office, all apologetic, saying that they would be happy to, uh, to get the office or get the file from the London office now and uh, invited me to uh, send out a, a broadcast email to all the other clinics in Ontario telling them that this is the way to do it, that if uh, we want to get these files to the Toronto office, don't ask the local offices, ask the Toronto office, and uh, that's fine with me. That, that works. Can you give us a little bit of background on the case just so people put this in a little bit more context? Well, what, uh, what has happened is that uh, disabled uh, people in Ontario uh, are often entitled to uh, disability benefits through the Ontario government, and uh, they've changed the system quite a bit, uh, brought in a new statute and uh, um, so what's happened is that uh, the some of the paperwork processes have been co concentrated in Toronto it used to be up until now that there would be a London doctor who would assess London people as to whether they qualified or not but they've set up a centralized office in Toronto to do them all for the province whether that's a good idea or not is another story but uh, uh, part of the problem was that um, there are people out there who have been receiving benefits in the past who get them stopped for whatever reason for a short period. They're being forced to reapply for benefits under the new system and under the new system are sometimes not granted and some, sometimes the reason they're not granted is because they haven't sent in enough new medical information. Uh, whereas realistically, uh, so what happens is that the doctor in Toronto is looking at a file that's, you know, five pages thick. Uh, and they want a file that's 50 pages thick. Uh, and the frustration had been that, well, the, the person who had already, already been receiving benefits would have a file in London or wherever they were that was 50 pages thick. Uh, and the ministry office in Toronto wouldn't get that file from London um, so that they would have all the information they needed. Instead, they would simply say, we don't have enough information, you're denied. We won't give you benefits. So, uh, so anyway, say Bob to his credit and I, and, uh, 
Uh, I know that he had been active around the Sir Red Tape Committee, and uh, that's one of his pet interests. So uh, to his credit, he jumped right on it, and uh, I've had a uh, lightning response. Well, the message here, folks, is the message that I keep telling you, that uh, it doesn't always work when you go after somebody in the government to do this, that, or the other thing for you, but it never works if you don't go after them. Yeah. It never works if you don't try. And quite often, surprisingly enough, uh, you will get some positive results from speaking up and just letting, letting the politicians, whether they're provincial or federal or local, letting them know you've got a problem. If they don't know the problem exists, then they can't do anything about it. At least if you tell them and they don't do anything, you have the satisfaction of knowing they're deadbeats. Well, it's amazing. If, uh, if you get the minister on board, it's amazing how quickly bureaucrats jump. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they pretend that it doesn't happen that way, but we know it does. Uh, Left, Right, and Center is, is our program here this morning, and uh, Bob and uh, Jeff come in and join us every Wednesday to discuss an issue, or sometimes more than one issue, of, of the moment. We'll be back in a moment to do that today on this edition of Ask the Experts. Of Ask the Experts. Well, we can call it that, too. <laughs> of of uh, whatever it's called on 1290CJBK. Last week on uh, this program, the name of which I hesitate to say because I'll get it wrong again. No, it's Left, Right, and Center. We talked about a case... Uh, coming before the Supreme Court and mentioned that the ruling was coming down, I believe, on Thursday, possibly the Friday. I'm, I'm not sure, nor does it matter tremendously. There's a case before the Supreme Court about a man who had uh, divorced his wife and uh, had been ordered by the courts to pay her support for uh, uh, X amount of time. Uh, he had done that willingly, apparently, had not uh, skirted any of his responsibilities. The courts had upped his payments. Uh, for a while, and he had paid the uh, higher rate, and so on and so on, and then it uh, it ended. The agreement, uh, or the court ruling ended, the court order, whatever you want to call it, ended. Uh, that was fine. Um, some years later, and I'm not sure how many years, the case which had been pursued by his wife uh, ended up in the Supreme Court. Her contention had been, uh, it was Bracklow versus Bracklow. That was the name, but I was trying to remember that. Bracklow versus Bracklow. Her contention had been that she now suffers from very serious... Um, thank you, fibromyalgia. Thank you, Robert. See, it affects the brain, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fibromyalgia and cannot work, and as a result, has suffered serious emotional problems, so on, so on, so on. Bottom line is she is now on some kind of disability uh, pension from the government, and her contention was that her husband should be required to uh, continue to pay her support because he could afford to do so. Even though they were long since divorced, he in fact has remarried. There was no question of children involved. There was no argument over, over uh, uh, property. Uh, they, had, they were both mature adults when they were married. They both had careers. So there was no question of her having sacrificed her career for the marriage. None of that pertained at all. It was a simple case of two mature adults marrying and then divorcing one of them taking sick and saying the other one has to support me. Now, Jeff said, and in, in Jeff's defense, he also prefaced this by saying, I'm not a, uh, this is not my area of expertise, but his expectation, his expectation was, generally speaking, that this would probably not fly because it just, on the face of it, didn't make any sense. I think Bob agreed, I agreed, it didn't seem to make any sense. In fact, the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, he does have a responsibility to pay her this money uh, for an indefinite period of time. And said responsibility in other cases would be adjudicated by the courts. They didn't set down a schedule for anybody. It would be adjudicated on a case-by-case -case basis. But the precedent certainly now is there. Uh, the next judge to come along and face this will be able to say, all things being equal, that uh, uh, yes, you, Mr. Jones, or Mrs. Jones indeed, are going to pay your now-disabled spouse X number of dollars a month for as long as I think is appropriate. 
And Jeff, I just wanted to kind of get your reaction to that. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the Supreme Court does not pick these decisions out of the air, although some people think they do. They, you know, they, they felt there was some basis in law for this. But what, you're, you're a lawyer. I mean, does this, we talk a lot about the law coming in, di in disrepute because of uh, disagreement with rulings from judges and people see that people who, uh, you know, get drunk and kill somebody in a car and they get out in 18 months and it kind of throws the whole idea of the law into disrepute. Do you think this ruling does the same kind of thing? Uh, I don't. I don't think it does. Uh, although it certainly was surprising, uh, but I think that uh, you know we we sort of framed the issue last week about sort of our expectation around the fact that a, a marriage is over. You know, a contract is at an end. Versus, you've made these lifetime vows or supposedly lifetime vows, and should there be a certainty associated with that? And they obviously came down uh, in favor of saying. That you know, there, there's a certainty in that uh, if you enter into a marriage, it's a serious thing and uh, that you don't just sort of walk away from it easily. And uh, as a result of that, that you could take on obligations strictly because of the fact that you got married. It, it uh, uh, struck me in a couple of ways, though. One of them was that um, the, the court um, hopefully will often reflect community values in a way that's ho hopefully a little less, um, uh, a less we just say sensational than sometimes politicians try to reflect community values that is that hopefully they're not pushing hot buttons but hopefully they've got sort of a broad finger on the pulse of the nation if you like uh, and the reason that that hopefully occurs is that uh, since uh, uh, 1980 whenever it was uh, that the uh, uh, charter came in they have some powers that are uh, that are supreme over those of uh, parliament and as a result of that uh, there was actually a speech given last week by one of the Supreme Court judges I can't remember who it was uh, who talked about how they they, he saw their role as being sort of a, a review of the acts of parliament and sort of a uh, almost like a sober second second thought beyond what the Senate is supposed to do. Um, and, and his point, I think, was that, again, parliament's free to go back and change things if they don't like what the Supreme Court is doing. But the Supreme Court will sit back and they'll sort of think about this thing in almost a Buddha-like way and sort of cogitate on it for a while and then uh, come up with a, a, a ruling that will say, okay, you know, here's the way we ought to be going for now. Um, it's not the kind of thing that shocks me to say that uh, if you're married that uh, and you're and your uh, wife or husband gets really sick, that you may have to look after them for a long time. Uh, I can understand the rationale for that. Uh, what what I had said last week was the biggest concern that I had was that when you talk about who's got the best, who can best bear the cost of caring for somebody who's really sick, I thought that the state was a better a better organization just because cumulatively it doesn't cost us nearly as much. In this case, I think that the uh, the husband wasn't making a lot of money. He was a car mechanic or something, and he had a new family with kids, uh, and wasn't paying all that much either. He was paying four dollars a month or something mm -hmm. um, that clearly she would be getting government assistance beyond that and what would realistically end up happening at the end of the day at least in Ontario is that the government would get all that money the government would pay the whatever it is nine hundred dollars a month disability allowance and then any support that uh, she got from her husband the government would simply keep mm -hmm. um, but uh, say it's not something that shocks me it certainly surprised me because it's a lot different than it was the law I would but say today is a lot different than it was last week I'm going to ask Bob, too, because my question would be, does it make sense to you? But I'll ask Bob that question. Does this make any sense at all? Let me preface it with something first, though. Um, I did get a couple of calls from people off the air um, who had read it and heard about it on the show and then called and said, and they both made the same comment. You know, maybe there's a silver lining to this cloud. They both saw it as a cloud. Maybe there's a silver lining in that maybe people will start to take marriage a little more seriously than we have. We've, we've tended to, to allow marriage to become a very frivolous thing. You get married today, you get divorced tomorrow, big deal, no problem, cost you a few hundred bucks, and, and you know, on you go. 
that's a that's a completely separate issue from uh, if, if if that's your issue then what you do is you make divorce tougher to get but that's not the issue here the issue here is that someone had a divorce it was done it was finalized and the courts went on the premise now that that didn't have any legal validity so in other words ago. i think i think there, there's been such a can of worms opened up here I would suggest that uh, the loser in this case could sue the state for misrepresenting themselves and granting him a divorce in the first place. He wasn't free of it, as one would understand one is when you meet the terms of your divorce. It means that we have abandoned the rule of law in this country and that whatever a judge's whim happens to be is what we have to live by. Um, you know, we all agreed last week that this was a real bad idea if it had come out this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe I was the only one who entertained the thought that it could come out this way because I see the courts starting to act as social welfare agencies and uh, that they are beginning to meet out instead of getting the taxpayer to pay it direct, they'll get the next private interest that they can find to pay something. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's also an obligation on the part of the state that if this is a problem of a disease or a sickness, this government has committed itself to universal health care it's supposed to be taking care of people like this. Why is that not happening? There's another breach of a contract on that side of the equation. And on and on it goes. It's a, it's a can of worms that's been opened so wide now, you just cannot trust any contract you sign. You can't trust any decision of the court. You can't trust anything like that. That's, that's pretty serious stuff. And I'm surprised, Jeff, that you think that this is perfectly okay. Well, these things are always changing. And when I think about well, you yeah, talk about people entering into marriage with the expectation that you can get, a, get out easily, it's only within the last uh, 15 years that that's been the case. Yeah, but he was in and out of his marriage within the last 15 years. Well, that fellow was. But when you talk about the number of people out there who were married in the 60s, for instance, when at the time the only divorce you could get was a divorce for adultery, basically, uh, it used to be really hard to get a divorce. And it was only this, this idea of moving to a laissez-faire kind of an marriage doesn't well, maybe mean that there's much. A, a case recent, for making, recent innovation. Maybe there's a case for making divorce harder to get, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is once you have a divorce and once the court has decided, is that worth anything? Well, yeah, and that's that's a whole other side of it, which is that laws change from from going east to going west, uh, you know, from time to time. And sometimes it's a court that does it. Sometimes it's a legislature that does it. What was legal today becomes illegal tomorrow. But Jeff, doesn't it matter versa. to you? Like you just seem you seem to be saying, well, the pendulum pendulum swings back and forth. So what? Like, is there no right or wrong in this to you? I mean, don't you see something fundamentally morally wrong with this kind of a decision? Uh, well, you know, we're, we're, you talk about the substantive decision itself, and then you talk about the fact that the court court came out with a decision which was the opposite of what we all thought was a good idea. Those are sort of two different issues. Uh, and I can talk about the decision itself. Well, no, I've talked a bit issue. about it. But as far as the issue of whether it surprises me that the Supreme Court of Canada did something that nobody expected them to do, well, that doesn't surprise me any more than that the legislature sometimes I, I, I does something that totally surprises no, you, me. No, you already said that, you know, uh, the courts are reflecting community values and we are a welfare spending state. And we well, this is the opposite of a welfare way. decision. In this well, case, you're saying government so. isn't going to look after this person. Their, their family's well, going to look well, after them. No, but they picked on somebody rather arbitrary after someone was supposedly released from that obligation by the, by the decision of the same court that comes back on him. But again, and the family uh, value they're reflecting in this case is what I would argue is a right-wing, more of a right-wing family value, which is that families care for families. Government that. doesn't care yeah, for yeah. families. We can talk about, you know, parents having to support the children that they have from a, from a, a relationship. I understand there are no children in this relationship. No. Um, we can talk about 
the fact that divorce may be too easy to get, but that's absolutely not the issue here. We, we, we don't want to go there at all. This is a situation where the court has granted a person a, a divorce and now has come back and said that its own decision is no good. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, so does this decision mean anything, the one they just made now? Do we believe them? Well, again, when you talk about the court granting a divorce, they, they grant it pursuant to a statute passed by the parliament again. It's not, sometimes uh, it seems to me that people think courts have a bigger role in our society than they do have. They've got a big role. Well, they've but in this case, In this case, it's a divorce act. It's a federal statute that they're, in, that they're interpreting. The courts interpret things. And there's sort of a... But that doesn't justify the interpretation. This interpretation has no, no basis in precedent, in law, in common sense, in morality, in decency, in contract law. Uh, where is, get, tell me one good thing about this. But now we're talking back about the decision itself as opposed to the fact that they made a surprising decision and how that's troubling. Well, On the decision itself, I wasn't that surprised. tell you one good thing <laughs> about it. You know, I guess if, if I was going to look for a good thing, I'd say, well, uh, we've got an official organization standing up for families and saying that the state isn't going to look after everybody. If you've got a family, you're gonna, the family's going to be expected to look after you. The how are going to have a government look after families when those families can't even count on the contracts that hold the families together to be upheld. I mean, a family is built around a contract, contractual unit as well, which may be called marriage, maybe common law, or whatever else. But that, okay. these are all, you that, know, you can't say that uh, this is good for families, that now we're in a total my, state uh, of arbitrary judge's decision. Let me Come throw on. something else out there for you in this particular case. This individual, now I'm sure that he would not get, quote, get away with this, but uh, on a moral plane, I think you could almost say that he could now say, well, okay, you've ordered me to do such and such. There's a, in a sense, there's an implicit contract there. The, the, you know, the government has said do such and such, and as a law-abiding citizen, I have to do such and such. And I know, strictly speaking, Jeff, that's probably not a contract. But could he not say, well, you didn't like the last deal, which was your deal, the divorce. You didn't like that. You threw that out the window. I don't like this deal, so I'm not going to pay you. Maybe you should reconcile. Oh, he's married again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah he's married again. It's more complicated than you Is think. Is that legal? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, suppose some guy went to jail for three years for some, you know, break and enter or something like that, and he came out, and then two years later, he gets hauled away again, and they tell him, well, we thought we didn't give you a big enough sentence the first time. Mm -hmm. And we're going to add two more years now. That's exactly what's happening. Surely you're not going to call marriage a sentence. Holy cow. It, <laughs> it's, the, it's the completion of an obligation that the state has imposed on you. Either you, the same as your sentence if you're a prisoner. And I, I find it interesting that we would all be outraged if it happened to a prisoner, but not if it happens to a, quote, free citizen out, out free out there who's, op, who's met all his obligations and paid his taxes and paid his support, according to the now court. Can, yeah. Well, and that comes back to a fundamental thing that always exists in contract law. There's always a pull, well, and, and other laws, too, between certainty, that is, having fixed, firm rules that you can know the way the world exists and you can structure your affairs knowing the way things are going to work, versus trying to tailor... Uh, things that come up to the What do you think is better, facts. certainty or, or uncertainty? I've seen both be bad, and I've seen both be good, and I know the courts struggle with them. The, the, what the courts, or I should say what the government, I think, generally tries to do is to bring in rules that are going to be firm rules, but what they found over the over time is that inevitably there'll be a case that comes up where the rules don't make any sense. You know, so what they'll then say is, well, we're either going to make more rules and make it more complicated, or we're going to give discretion so that somebody can make a sensible decision. The problem is when you give discretion, then you get somebody who doesn't make a sensible decision. And, and, the, and the law is constantly swinging from the certainty side over to the discretion side. Okay, let me interject again. Is this in any way, shape, or form a sensible decision? People, it's not you know, people who've been divorced and remarried again. Suppose one of them came to you one day and said, Jeff, my ex 
is, is ill and my ex has applied to the courts for me to pay support, I got an, I'm married, I've got a whole other family, we were divorced years ago, we have no connection, don't talk to her, don't see her, nothing to do with her. It came to you and said, Jeff, would you, I mean, assuming that that was your, your area of expertise, you'd take that case in a minute, wouldn't you? Uh, well, that's what prior, prior to this little bit of foolishness. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm not calling it foolishness because I, there are lots of things in the world that I disagree with, and, and it's, it's not because I know everything. Often I'm wrong about things. Would I have made this decision? No, I wouldn't have. Do I think it has some scary implications because it's so open-ended? Yes, I do. Uh, and do I agree with the idea that when something happens that you're not expecting to happen, is that unsettling and can it work in unfairness? Yeah, definitely. But does it have any merit at all? Do you see any merit to this? Well, yeah, I think the fundamental thing we're coming back to again is saying that families have to look after families. But, the, but it's not a family. The, 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 but the government, the court has already said at this case, three or four years ago, the court has said before the whole world, this is no longer a family. You sign this got, paper got and, you, and you sign this paper and that family is done, gone, history, out of here. No, I, I understand what you're saying, and, uh, but, it, but it also, it's, first of all, the first thing is that uh, I think what they're saying is, yes, it is a family. And one of the things that lawyers have in their brains is that once a judge speaks, that's the way it is. Uh, when they say... If the Supreme Court of Canada says that a divorced person is part of a family, then in the eyes of a, of a lawyer walking into a court, uh, a divorced person is still part of a family. When the Supreme Court of Canada speaks, that's the end of the story as far as lawyers are concerned. Yes, we, but it has to fall within the purview of... of <laughs> it's common usage well, of language well, or whatever. Or, or, or the common law. I mean, they can't just go flailing well, off into the ozone no, and say well, anything they want. Common law, remember, all common law is judge-made law. All common law is made of these kinds of decisions. Mm -hmm. They're all decisions that have been made by courts that were not made by a legislature, and, and that's the basis of our whole system of, gov of, uh, of justice. But would you not agree that for the most part, the, 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 the rulings that make up the body of the common law have stood the test of time because they did ultimately make some kind of sense? No, I, the decisions that have stood the test of time did make sense, that's true, but there are tons of decisions that were made that didn't stand the test of time, but still were the law of the day. So do we hope that this is all, do you, would you like to see this reversed? It can't be yes. reversed now, can it? Uh, yeah, it can. I guess the next thing that will happen is, as you said, what they said is that there has to be a discretion. They didn't set out absolute rules for how it's going to work. So now there's a new broad law and it's going to have to be fleshed out. Okay, well, what are the factors going to be? Blah, blah, blah. Those things will be revisited by the courts. And what this could end up coming back at is, uh, is that uh, the courts may decide that this will happen only in very, very unusual, rare cases. Well, so, so, so you're going to have a handful of Canadians or however many it takes to go through some kind of nightmare legal hell so the justices can play dice with their lives and fiddle, figure out, well, you know, how are we going to make this work, yada, yada. Meanwhile, people are spending thousands and the, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Test cases are a horrible way of making law because you're right. The, I'll bet you this took years to get there. It did, Although yes. the Supreme Court of Canada is a lot faster than it used to be. I'll bet it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. I don't know who paid them, but that's what it would have cost to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. And yet that's, that's again, our test case system, that if you want to change a law, the way you do is by going to court. And if you want to go to court, you have to go up through three levels. Okay, we have to go through one level here. We have to keep the boss happy. This is 1290 CJBK, and you're listening to Talk of the Town, and this is our regular weekly feature, Left, Right, and Center. Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz will continue the program and invite you to join us at 643-1290. Star 1290 on the Cantel. Put you right in touch with us right here at 1290 CJBK. Well, I want to come back to a comment that was made just before we uh, we uh, vote for those spots. Uh, Jim Chapman here on Talk of the Town, left, right, and center with uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. Uh, Jeff, I asked you whether you wanted to see this change, and you indicated yes, you would like to see this change. Yep. Because you, you are ultimately uncomfortable with this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
the idea that, uh, that again, it's some open-ended thing, that this could go on the rest of this guy's life, uh, that, again, I think he had no expectation that that could ever happen when he got involved in marriage, although we talked last time about how my understanding is you don't, marriage based on, you don't get married based on the contract. You can negotiate and whether you've got these obligations, you get married for love. So uh, mm -hmm. it should never have entered his mind. It seems to me, too, that an obligation is a two-way street. I, you know, the only criteria the court uses is who's got more money, and that's it. And therefore, he has an obligation to her, but she doesn't have to do anything for him. It's like a very strange one-sided contract that doesn't even really exist. Well, uh, again, the thing, though, that surprises me, I guess, or maybe not surprises me, but I would think the, the right would take some comfort in is that they're not saying government's got to pay more money. They're saying somebody else has got to pay instead of government. I don't know why you think the right's going to take comfort in this. You know, the right generally likes to see contract law enforced, and the right is concerned about family values, as you claim to be, and I don't think you're going to have family values preserved very well in a country that can uh, just arbitrarily put people from different families together through the court system. Well, this guy's gone that's off, another, started another, another family, of this. now it's he's like, obligated to another speaking one. Speaking as a single person, I think I, I think twice about this whole marriage deal now. Well, the big, the big rule is don't move in with anybody, don't have any relationships, <laughs> uh, you know. And if you do have sex, you've got to get that yeah. contract signed ahead of time. And if you are married, don't bother getting divorced, I'll and if my you're not married, yours don't bother getting married. <laughs> but you know what troubles me the most about it, and I'm, I'm a layman and certainly not as learned as either one of you guys in this area, because Jeff's a lawyer and Bob certainly spends a lot of his time looking at I've these legal issues. I've seen your library. Issues. You know an awful lot. Um, the thing that troubles me the most about this is the idea that it is going to be the judgment of some judge. Uh, and Judge A may very well interpret this different from Judge B or Judge C. And just as an example, as, as I read the, uh, and I did read the, uh, although I didn't understand all of it, but I did read the, ju the, uh, the, the, the ruling, um, it is left to the discretion of the, of the judge, and there are extenuating circumstances, and there's blah, blah, this, and blah, blah, that. But it seemed to me that if you had a, a, a pair that were married, and they got divorced, and say the, uh, uh, you know, mom got married to, a, to another guy, and, uh, and uh, or there is no, let's say there's no kids, let's keep it on that plane. They split up, the woman gets married to another guy who's maybe got a bunch of dough, and uh, the hubby goes down, you know, maybe starts taking a few pills and drinking too much and gets sick or whatever. Who knows what happens? And the judge, some judge comes along and decides, well, this poor guy, look at, look at, the, look at his ex-wife. She's got all this money. Gee whiz, you know, you pay him some dough. Well, that's exactly what's going on. Well, yeah, and it, uh, the, the, the problem isn't the fact that a judge is making a decision, though, because you'd expect a judge to have to rule on any kind of contract or divorce cases. I think that the, the, the issue is, and, and Jeff, you're talking about certainty with regard to the law and rules. I'm not looking for certainty there. I'm looking for certainty in the principle on, on which those laws and rules are going to be based. And I want to see the principles of individual responsibility and individual rights and individual obligation on contractual law to be the things on which this government bases. That's where I want to see the certainty. Mm -hmm. Sure, rules are screwy and maybe too rigid at times where they defeat their own purpose. Uh, that's a side issue to me. This is changing an ultimate fundamental principle on, upon which all the other rules will be based. And that's why I think it's one of the most serious breaches and the most, most loudly announced I mean, this is, this is going to affect a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Jeff, you said it, it was less sensational than the politicians doing it. I think this is a pretty sensational court case. But, you know, it wasn't. It, yeah. it was a big story in some areas and not in others. 
We talked to, uh, to Rob Painter from the Free Press the other day, and he acknowledged that the Free Press had given it very small coverage. And a couple of the other papers that they get on the Internet that you know, I, I try to read across the country, very little coverage. The Toronto that paper, doesn't surprise me. The Toronto papers gave it big play. The Post gave it big play. Um, the, the others, not quite as much, but certainly... There you go, Jeff. The right-wing papers are giving it big play. They think it's important. The left-wing papers don't. That's what you're kind of getting there. Because uh, they want to downplay it. They like the idea of the courts redistributing the left-wing paper now? Uh, always has been, as far as I remember, for at least the last 10 or 20 years. You think yeah. it still is? Absolutely. Well, you're going to have lunch with John Payton one uh, day. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my perspective. Well, I want to take, shift this just for a second, because I want to take advantage of your expertise and get your thoughts on another issue. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, uh, the OPSU, the pending OPSU strike, and, and whether it was appropriate, and whether they should, and whether they shouldn't, and all this sort of stuff. As it turns out, there was no strike. Um, they settled uh, rather quickly, it appears. I had Leah Castleman on, and she was crowing victory. But if you look at the, the plain facts, uh, it was no victory for, the, for labor. Uh, the, I guess the victory was they didn't go on strike, and they did, get, they did get some modest improvements in their salary, but a 1.5% a year, something like that, that I'm sure the government can live with. Um, they, a whole lot of other things they didn't want, certain kinds of protections they didn't want. Anyway, she made a good case that it was a big victory for them. You know, I mean, you hope that in cases like this that both sides win, but it doesn't seem to me that they get anywhere near what, not, not only what they asked for, because you always ask for the moon, but they didn't fight very hard. And, and they still got more than what they had before. They, they got more than what so they had before, yes. So in that, in that sense, it's a victory. Any standard that way. It's I a think. victory, okay. But it's certainly not the kind of victory that they've fought bitterly for in the past. They fought a lot harder. Uh, to win than they fought well, this time. I think that when you bargain in any case, you always ask for more than you expect. No question. My, my point is, Bob, though, that I think, it, maybe I'm wrong, I just want to ask you guys. When I look at it, I think that they ducked out of the line of fire. The only, the only explanation I can come up with for them taking such a publicly hard line and settling for something so fast that was so far from where they started. It's one thing they say, I want you know, $100,000 a year, and then a month later you settle for 50. When you say, I want $100,000, and a day later you settle for 25, you say, wait a minute. The only thing I can see is that maybe the labor leaders are a little sharper than some people give them credit for and bought into the idea that we discussed that this would be a bad thing for them to do, that, that, that Harris might very well ride such a strike uh, to an electoral victory. And maybe all the rest of the stuff we heard was just a bunch of hot air, just to, to, to get some attention onto it. Well, these negotiations might have been just going in a straight line from day one, and we just didn't know about it. So because of publicity surrounding, it's always going to be sensationalized. So who, who put the publicity out? Well, whoever does it for the unions and... Whoever does it for the government, but I'm the not unions sure. had nothing to gain by, from making this look like it was going to be and a the media battle does it. and then fold, fold overnight. Did they? I mean, they had nothing to gain from that. Well, they're not going to say they're going to fold tomorrow. They're no, not no, going <laughs> You know, you got to go in fighting all the way. But did you not find it a little surprising, though, given what they wanted, which were fairly extensive uh, uh, salary increases plus job protection plus uh, just a ton of stuff? You know, it's funny that you say that I should be surprised by, by, seeing, no, a union make, by seeing a union make a rational decision. <laughs> well, do you think it was a rational decision? Would you agree well, that the, the, the most, like, most likely explanation is they realized that Harris was manipulating them? For them, absolutely. Um, because, as we said last week, I think we commented that the timing couldn't be worse to go on strike. That It would be a shoe-in for Harris. This is the kind of thing he would almost be begging for, to see a strike because it polarizes issues so well and uh, gets the public angry at, at even a, a cause that they might support otherwise. Well, that raises another question. I'll put it to you, Jeff. If the case is, if it is true that, that Harris would have benefited greatly from a strike, uh, why didn't we have one?
I mean, he could have told the negotiators, that's the, that's the offer, leave it on the table. Yeah, I, that, that's the $64,000 question, and I think last time we talked about it, our sense was that it would, it would uh, favor the Tory government to get into a strike right now because people would uh, rebound against the unions. But I, the more I think about it, I, I wondered about that because it would be sort of at odds with all of the government thrust recently. It's been a long time since this government has taken on anybody and called them names like they used to do all the time. But for the last year, to me, they've been refocusing them their image dramatically. We've seen we've seen the announcements just within the last two weeks, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of new spending for everything under the sun. And I think that their strategist went back about uh, two years ago and recognized that they had extraordinarily weak support amongst women. They had very very strong core support uh, amongst men, um, but uh, very weak support with women. And and that the, what they heard back constantly was, "You're just too mean." And I think that they took that to heart and decided to go back and start softening the image. Um, uh, they they brought in people Probably like spending money. Well, that's uh, how governments seem to do these things. Well, by I, not, I'm, by I'm not surprised that your naivete that the government would even care about any of these interest groups. This is just that, that incredible spending we see before every single election by every single party, regardless of what they've promised. Mm -hmm. But that's something uh, that interests me about. And that's why the timing of it is now. Doing that. Yeah, like, oh, no, no, no. The, the voters, you But know. it doesn't matter. Does it matter when the timing is if they deliver what we want? Ultimately, we want governments to deliver what we want. And, and poll after poll says the people of Ontario want their health care insured, they want education insured, and they don't much care about a whole lot else. So if in fact that's the truth, if that's what we want right now, and if that's what Harris or whoever else the government might be, if that's what they're giving us, well, what do we care whether it's before an election or not? Well, because of the, because the timing of it wasn't at any other time. Why wasn't Harris doing that throughout his whole sitting in power? Well, Why he, wasn't, his explanation, know? and I'm not sticking up for him, but his explanation would be it took us this long to get to the point where we could refocus these funds. They said this morning, one of the news releases this morning said that uh, some more funding for this or that or the other thing, what they was asked where you got the money. We got the money from the restructuring, savings from restructuring and... And, and, and from lowering taxes. Well, he didn't say that in that, this particular yeah, case. Well, not the one I heard, well, but I'm sure he has said that I as well. He yeah. said that to you on your show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just talking about this thing this morning, this particular announcement this morning. But I was wondering, the other thing that they say that they've gotten a big chunk of money from the feds, too, that they had that settlement to uh, yeah. get two billion or whatever it is for for health care um, but it struck me uh, that as I say the government is really refocusing itself quite a bit and I wonder whether they are risking um, some of their core supporters by by now seeming to open the floodgates as far as spending and by a kowtowing to special interests as some people would perceive it and so on uh, that they're trying to broaden their appeal it seems to I me. Just, I don't think the spending is going to improve anything I think you're still going to hear people complaining about standing in lines at the hospital I still think but, you're going to hear. They always do. I mean they did, well, they did it under Ray's that's government. My they did point. it under Peterson's so government. So it's not going to make any difference in that regard uh, throwing more money into an already ailing system, and by ailing I mean economically and the way it's structured, uh, isn't going to improve the service that's being provided. Um, the government looks at, for example, great advances in medical technology as a tremendous expense rather than as an opportunity to capitalize and reduce expense, in, in you know, mm -hmm. which is how a business would look at capitalization. Mm -hmm. A business buys a big expensive piece of machinery because they know it's going to make money for them. But the healthcare system doesn't operate that way. So we have fewer machines, we have to wait in line, and the money comes from the common pool uh, that's competing for everything else from uh, education to welfare. So all our systems are in jeopardy as long as we keep funding our social programs this way. And in that regard, I don't think Harris is any different from the Liberals or the NDP. He just wants to do it more centralized, more government control. I see no move towards privatization of education and healthcare and all those things that everybody's complaining about. It's not an ideological thing 
that Harris advocates, if it happens, it would have happened under an NDP regime or a liberal but regime. there's no support for that. There's, well, no, there's no broad-based support. There, there's no political education. support, but the support is there in the real community of economics where people put their money where no, their mouth is. I don't is. buy that. I don't think the average Ontarian um, is interested in privatized education. Well, that, why is it happening then? Why are more people going to private schools? Why are yeah, more... How many more? I mean, we're significantly. It's, oh, it's, no, no. We're talking minuscule numbers here. Vis-a-vis -vis the, vis -vis the number of parents who could afford to put their kids in private school, the number who actually do is minuscule. Well, that's, again, a problem with the state education system. They may put them in a position where they can't even put their education tax dollars in a school well, they want to send about, their kids I said, to. No, I said that the parents who could afford to do it, and mm -hmm. there are lots of parents, mm -hmm. they might have to trim a little here, trim a little there, not take that vacation. There are all kinds of parents in Ontario who could afford to put their kids in private education who don't do it. I know a lot of people who can't really afford to put their kids in private education and do. Well, and so and do I. I, I, know, I know do if you like that too. The only and point I'm trying to make is that you made the, you made the comment that about privatizing health care and privatizing education and the governments aren't moving in that way. Well, I think they're not moving because I don't think the people of Ontario want that. Yeah, but the point is the opposition keeps yelling at the conservatives that that's what they're doing. Well, because that's that, what oppositions do. Well, but it's not true is what I'm saying. It doesn't matter. Since, <laughs> since what does truth got anything to do with what you yell across the floor of the legislature? Come on. You talk about naivete. We're going to pause for a moment. We'll be right back with more on Left, Right, and Center. I mentioned Jeff Schlemmer with us on uh, this edition of Left, Right, and Center on 1290 CJBK, the talk of London. Um, I'm Jim. Yes, sir. Just before we continue, getting back to, we went around in a circle there, but getting back to the strike that okay. didn't happen, Jeff sort of indicated that um, that this was a good thing that in, in the sense that they didn't really exercise their right to strike. And I think I need to make a distinction here that just because you don't go on strike doesn't mean you haven't exercised your right to strike. Mm -hmm. Having that right is what gives the threat of a strike the same impact as possibly having a strike itself. Yeah. And, and I think that's a distinction that needs to be made because if they didn't have that right to strike, withhold their labor and keep, quote, scab labor out of or away from their employer, they wouldn't have the power to make these deals. And I think that has to be stated. It's, it's not a legitimate thing that most people in, a, in an economy have. What I'm still not sure about, though, is, is uh, whether the op, whether ops who are basically playing the Tory tune, the, this election is going to be way different than I think anybody would have predicted it would, would have been two or three years ago, because at the time the talk was, you know, there were the huge rallies going on at Queen's Park all the time, protest rallies here all over the place. Uh, you know, a, a Tory MPP couldn't go anywhere without having a bunch of people with placards around and stuff. And, and, and all the talk was, wait till the next election. We're going to be dogging you guys everywhere you go, blah, 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 blah. And it just seems to me that the, the spark has gone out of that. And whether it's because over the last year they've sort of softened, so they're not as easy a target, it's harder to point to things. Uh, sir, I'm certainly willing to try. You think uh, it's but, just that, uh, or harder to point maybe, to mean things? You think maybe they realize it's backfiring on them, it's not really a good tactic? Well, was there not an announcement not too long ago, and, I, and don't press me on who it was, but it was some Ontario Labour leader, and I can't remember now, who said that, uh, and I'm sure I heard this, who said that when, as, when the election is called, we will be everywhere. We will be demonstrating. We will have general strikes. We'll be doing the whole nine yards to remind everybody what a terrible government this is. And I'm hearing him or her, and I wish I could remember who it was, and I'm thinking, well, you want to get Mike Harris elected, you go ahead and do that. That's you right. You do exactly that. Well, my sense and, is that that's not going to happen, though. And the fact that OPSU has said, like OPSU is one of the one of the larger uh, uh, unions, one of the more influential unions, and the fact that they've they've bought peace now, basically, I think it's going to make it extremely hard for them to get their membership out to be protesting and stuff. If there was a strike going on, have you seen that outrageous literature that's going door to door in some of the neighborhoods? Oh, yeah, the uh, Tory campaign. Somebody, whoever is in your riding, like no. in, in my riding, oh, I vote I against the sixty-five million dollars of government you know? advertising. We've <laughs> no, no, it's just a it's just a vote against campaign, and and it's um, 
it's, it's an outrageous pamphlet. It's got pictures of, uh, you know, Tory violence inside, which is really a picture of, you know, the people at Queen's Park trying to repel the, the union organizers who were trying to rush rush the legislature That's there. That's not what happened there. Uh, and, uh, oh, no, that, they always... We can talk about that. Those thousands of people just showed up by accident. Funny, yeah. Oh, no, no, it was a legitimate protest. That's why we have uh, government government places so people can get together and gather. In that case, it was the, uh, if it's one I'm thinking of, it was one where the OPP came rushing out uh, saying they're going to stack and rack all the demonstrators and people ended up in flower bushes and uh, with blood all over. And after that, the OPP were withdrawn from Queen's Park and told they couldn't do security there anymore. And they brought in uh, uh, their own Queen's Park security people. But anyway, aside from that, though, uh, the thing thing that strikes me about the people so who would Harris say vote for anybody except Harris, the problem with that is that we've got a split left in this in this province. You know, if those people seriously wanted to get Mike Harris out, the smartest thing they should have done years ago is to start a reform party in Ontario because those people can't decide, is it Liberal or is it NDP, and they're split, and they're going to split the vote perfectly. Isn't it interesting, though, that if we've been having this discussion prior to the last election, I guarantee you that one of the top issues on our minds would have been whether reform is going to uh, destroy Mike Harris's chances in Ontario. If you recall in that election, there was a big movement. It didn't go anywhere, but there was a lot of talk about a big movement by a reform provincially in Ontario, and there were a lot of people who were very concerned about it on the right, who were very, very concerned. There were meetings, and they were strategizing, and all sorts of stuff went on. How can we convince these potential reformers not to do this, because they're going to split the right, and, and, uh, and, uh, and then Her McLeod's going to win. Harris went, went reform on the province, well, basically. Maybe, well, there was, but there was still a lot of reformers ran. They didn't yeah. get many votes, but they ran. Did they run provincial? Not provincial. Oh, yeah. They were, yes, sir. There were provincial reform candidates. I don't, I don't believe so. Well, I'm thinking of one yeah. in particular that ran up in Godrich. Oh, he uh, might have been a federal reformer running on a provincial ticket as an independent, but he couldn't have been a reformer. Well, he waved the reform flag. Because That's quite possible. Yeah. But uh, the reform party does have an official registration in Ontario, but they have never exercised it, never run a candidate. They want to prevent someone else from taking the name. My understanding was that an agreement had been worked out between the Harris Tories and the Federal Reform Party not to run provincial reformers in exchange for Harris not supporting uh, Sheree in the last uh, election. Uh, and that basically they've got this coalition. The, the Ontario Tory Party, and certainly the government, is uh, largely people who vote reform federally. That's, that's, this is a right-wing government. And, and I think the genius was preventing the reform from really coming in. But, but uh, when I see Harris spending a lot of money, when platform. I see him... Well, yeah, that's yeah. right. When, and when I see uh, Mike Harris sort of going into the spend mode and sort of nice guy mode, uh, we saw the political cartoon in the, the Freeps a couple weeks ago where he's taken off his scary bear suit and put on his Winnie the Pooh huggy bear suit for the election. I wonder how far he can push that before his, his more right-wing and many right-wing supporters start to say, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't think he's going to scare them a bit. I think they know exactly what's going Maybe. on. Maybe. As uh, Chip Martin said, we wait till after the election for Slash and Burn Part 2. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it needs to be done. Does it? Yeah, but you made an interesting comment, yeah. though, Bob, about, about stealing the plat other parties' platforms. Isn't that ultimately, though, what we want governments to do? I mean, if the, yeah, op if the opposition absolutely. has a good idea, we want the government to take the I've idea. I've been begging the government to steal every policy the Freedom Party has for years and years, but they don't even want to hear me anymore. Uh, well, we have it this morning. That by the way, this, 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 this provincial conservative government has been the government, ever since Freedom Party got started, we never had a government that listened less. Mm -hmm to other points of view and, and really closed its doors to all these public hearings. This never happened under the NDP or the Liberals with us. You know, as, a, as an officially registered party, you'd think we'd be one of the first ones in line to be allowed to address public forums on various issues. Mm -hmm. The Conservatives cut us completely out of the picture this time around. And uh, we're going to let the public know about that in the next election, too.
Why do you think they did that? What do they have to fear from you? Splitting the vote. They see us. They see us in many ways as as competition to them. It's really funny when you get into politics. Sometimes your worst enemies politically are your ideological friends, in in on a lot yeah. of issues. And just as Jeff says, he says the left is split in Ontario. This is this is a big problem that we have with our first past the post. Uh, voting system that it causes all these kinds of strange splits and schisms mm -hmm. where you can't work with people you always have to work against them so if I was Harris or a Tory I would want to see more left-wing parties and encourage them to get out there encourage them to get support which is exactly what they're doing mm -hmm. and so they can they can split and filter the vote more out on the left and then take the leftovers for themselves and that's how they get in with a minority what do you make of this argument or this uh, this uh, initi supposed initiative uh, that you talked about before anybody but Harris, so that we're not, uh, the NDP won't run strong candidates against strong liberal candidates. It's already falling by the wayside. They're already running strong candidates against the Southern Sunrise. Right. But, but I mean, just that kind of campaign just speaks to the whole sad situation we have in the way we vote not for people, but against people. And that's unfortunately the kinds of governments we've been picking for years, is the lesser of a given number of evils. What about more, do we need more independent people to run? Would that help? That would be wonderful. Um, I even broached, I, I, I talked to the Elections Commission here in Ontario about that, running independence. You really can't do it. They've made, they fixed the rules against that. An independent can't prepare in advance because he can't collect money and put money aside and save it for his campaign unless it's his own. Mm -hmm. Can't get it from his friends until he's registered as a candidate. Can't do that until they have a very short 28-day, uh, you know, writ period mm -hmm. from which you can actually start collecting money for your campaign. Um, the doors are basically closed. You also can't use use the word independent for a party name or, or putting it on a ballot or anything mm -hmm. like that. So independent politics is basically illegal. Okay, well, you, you can run, you can run, but just as a... Uh, not illegal, but perhaps but cumbersome. More than cumbersome. The, but what if you were the, the a cards are so stacked What if you were a you? candidate that was high profile in your writing, for example, and for one reason or another you didn't, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't cotton to any of the existing parties? Very Peter, possible Peter to run. Not, right? uh, Peter, yeah, yeah well, but he Peter was elected North was, on a, was an incumbent who came from a party, and yeah. that, that has yes. happened. I can't think of too many instances John where it's the reverse. It's just uh, almost impossible. I can't think of a case where an but independent got elected. But if you had a strong candidate, again, who didn't like any of the parties and could make a case to his constituents that unless I'm a cabinet minister in the governing party, I have no power anyway other than the nuts and bolts of daily business, and I'll take care of that for you. I can do that as your MP, mm -hmm. MPP, and I won't be pushed around by these clowns in Toronto. Mm -hmm. What do you think the chances somebody like that would be? Well, it depends on the level of the support. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that statistically it's yeah. almost well, let, impossible. Let's, let's assume it's a popular character and they've got the money to run. Sure, he could get in. He wouldn't have any official standing uh, in the legislature as a with, as a party does. He wouldn't so, have to waste any time on meaningless committees either, would he? Um, that's up or to him, she. I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know how they would point them. They might be appointed to some committees where they're in agreement with a particular party. Well, coalition building gets you power, and it's a question of whether you build it internally or externally. And we have a tradition of building it within the parties, I guess. You know, I say that the, the, the Harris Tories have been a coalition of right-wing interests who have gotten together around the issue and ran as a party. Uh, in Italy, you have the example where it's the opposite, where the parties are all individual, but then when they get in, when they get elected, then they form coalitions. Mm -hmm. um, one way or another, it's the guy who can get everybody uh, talking his language who gets to run the place. Well, you know, yeah, eventually people will get voted in by what the people in their riding want. But the odd, you see, provincially and federally, though, most people vote for the party.
often they don't even know who the candidate yeah. is. And that's just the way it is. And ironically, I think it's provincially the party name and affiliation isn't even on the ballot. So you have to know who your candidate is. Gentlemen, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, thank you for listening. On tomorrow's program, we will be live at the Dream Home for Bethany's Hope, supporting metachromatic leukodystrophy research. Uh, and we invite you to drop by and pick up your ticket. Come on out and see us do the show and pick up.